Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hello, everybody. We're back for another Space Junk Podcast. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and today we are going to be talking about telescope optics with David Nagler. He is the president of Teleview Optics, and I'm really excited about this podcast episode because there's a lot of questions I have for him, and he's going to tell us a little bit about uh, not just eyepieces and their optics, but also the telescopes that they make, as well as we're going to get some history of the company and learn all kinds of things about Teleview. So I'm really excited about this. But before I introduce him, I need to bring up my co-host, Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes. Are you out there, Dustin? Yeah, thank you, Tony. This is really exciting. I've been a, a huge Teleview fan, like I think all people in astronomy, for the most part, are. I've got so many, so many things I'd like to say in this podcast, but definitely um, a huge fan of uh, everything that Teleview is doing. And uh, it's nice having David here at the shop, you know, spending some time with us. So, David, welcome. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Dustin. I really look forward to being here and just having a nice conversation about what we love. I've been looking at the night sky for decades, and as, as most of us are, but the technologies and the, the way in which visual astronomy has evolved over the years has really made for some amazing experiences for us. And so we're going to dive into some of that here. I'm hoping in this podcast we can provide information on two different levels, both on a beginner level for someone who's never looked through a telescope before, what maybe help navigate all the bewildering concepts and choices in the world of telescope or telescopes and eyepieces, and uh, also give some in, in information for advanced amateurs who may be looking for more uh, advanced information for their observing as well. So, David, let's start with, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Teleview? Tell us about the company and tell us about your role in the company. Okay, sure. Teleview was founded by my father, Al Nagler, in 1977. That after him having a long history in uh, optical design. But when he founded Teleview, his initial initial products were not telescope related, but he always had this love for amateur astronomy. He knew eventually the direction of the company would go there. In 1979, he spent quite a lot of time developing his Nagler eyepiece concept. And this was to be an eyepiece that had a much larger apparent field of view than was commercially available with far better image correction across that field than any other eyepiece regardless of design. It was going to be comfortable to use with some you know, longer eye relief. And as that developed, it was going to be a big eyepiece. It was going to be big, it was going to be complex, and it was going to be much more expensive than anything out there on the market. He, he initially got this, uh, I'll take a step back, but he initially realized that he could do this after working on a probe that was used for a flight simulator that he developed um, for the US Air Force. It was basically a camera, so it was for a flight training simulator. And he realized that, that this objective that he created 
for this camera, if used in reverse, could have been a wide field eyepiece. So he took that concept and he just sort of salted away in the back of his mind. And after Teleview started and he started making uh, uh, designing lenses for projection TV systems, uh, so after Teleview was rolling for a little while, a couple of years, he decided to pursue this idea, idea of this eyepiece. And so as the eyepiece took form, he realized it was going to be something that he didn't know that was going to be commercially successful because it was going to be so much larger, so much more expensive than anything on the market from a little unknown company. You know, it sounds like a witch's brew that he'd be peddling. So he designed a uh, Plossel type eyepiece, which was a well-known design. And he had a series of well-known Plossels at the time made by a French company called Clave. And he knew that he could design a Plossel type eyepiece that would have better edge field correction than those eyepieces. And since it was a well-known eyepiece, uh, this would be a way of establishing Teleview in the astronomy marketplace. So he didn't start the company initially with the, the Nagler eyepiece design. He started with a Plossel design. That's correct. That's correct. I remember those. That, are they still around, that company? No, they're long gone. They went through several iterations. They were very expensive at the time. They were really expensive. So he took, that, he took a design of a Plossel, which is a design, and he made it his own. He made his own version. That's right. And so unique that he um, was awarded a U.S. patent. And so- How can a, a, a Plossel design be different enough that you can patent it? It's still a Plossel, right? No, it could take different forms, but you have to have a claim to be patented. So the claim was better edge field performance, particularly astigmatism correction. I see. Okay. Okay. So he so he patented his patented his design based on the performance advantage of his design versus existing designs, and the government agreed and issued him a patent. And in fact, the Plossels were very well received. And Richard Berry, who was the then editor of Astronomy Magazine, took the four eyepieces in the line and did a review on them. And he wrote in this short review, sharpest I've ever used. And my father used that as a quote and in advertising and got the company rolling on these initial you know, four focal lengths of Plossel eyepieces. When the company got a bit well-known, that's when he really decided to pursue the Nagler design. And so I believe the Plossels were about 1980. By 81, he introduced the 13-millimeter Nagler, the original uh, Nagler. And I think his Plossels were selling at the time for either $40 or $45, which uh, a focal length which was considered expensive. The Nagler was introduced, I think the initial price was $180. So, so it, really, it really took people by surprise. But all one had to do was take a look through that eyepiece, blown away. That's where, that's where the quote, the spacewalk view came from. One of his customers mentioned that early on and it stuck. So describe that. what's so different about the the, the Nagler over the Plossel design. What 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 experience was different about it? it? It's got this more immersive feel to it, like you're falling into the eyepiece. So we we get just a little 
technical here. One of the characteristics of an eyepiece is its apparent field of view. So when you look into an eyepiece, you see a, a circle, a ring of light, and whatever image is in there is in there. But that circle represents a certain angle to your eye. And in a plossal, it's 50 degrees to your eye. But with the Nagler, it was 82 degrees. So you're using much more of your peripheral vision. And if you were to take a 13 millimeter plossal eyepiece versus a 13 millimeter Nagler eyepiece, you have two eyepieces that produce the same magnification. But the Nagler with its 82 degree apparent field is going to show you more real sky area. So let's say for argument's sake, with the Plossel, you see this 50 degree circle. Imagine you're looking through a toilet paper tube, okay? That's a 50 degree circle to your eye. Now imagine you open that up and you're looking out a ship's porthole. You're seeing much wider field of view. Uh, that that's sort of the experience in a very you know in a very simplistic uh, way. Yeah, but in a in a way, it's in a literal sense. You're like having a window to the universe. I mean, you're looking through a window. That's right. So if you're looking at the moon, let's say you have two eyepieces that have the same magnification, and you might be seeing just a portion of the moon at this magnification with the 50-degree plossal. Well, with a much larger field, you may see now the entire moon at that same magnification. And that is just incredible. I mean, anybody who's looked through a Nagler eyepiece can can see uh, the difference between, you know, the plossal and and what these what these guys offer. So it for an experience of a visual astronomer looking up in the in the heavens, there, there's just nothing to be matched by this. It's really an amazing experience to look through a Nagler well, eyepiece. The other very important component of this, and it, it has really been part of of Teleview's design philosophy. I'll say my father's, myself, um, the company's design philosophies, we want to produce a very natural view. So even with our plossals, it should be as sharp as possible and as high contrast as possible because you can't get any better than your own vision, right? You can't see any better than with your own vision. So we don't want to detract from that. So we want to provide as much image fidelity as possible. So when you expand that field up to 82 degrees, and now we have eyepieces up to 110 degrees, no matter where you look in the field, it should be a natural view. It should be sharp. Yeah, and you know this is this is kind of funny because I'm certainly not known for <laughs> visual astronomy. Almost everything I do is imaging. Is that everything. why you're so quiet in this <laughs> conversation? <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, we've had this conversation several times, you know, through the years, but I feel like it it never gets old because it's it's true. And you know, you see, there's such a huge difference, and a big part of the reason I'm even in astronomy, which I don't know if you and I have ever even talked about, Tony, but I got into astronomy with a Dobsonian, and I still, with visual astronomy, absolutely love the simplicity of Dobsonian telescopes. Yeah, they're great. And so I had I had all these plossals. I actually uh, ventured out, and um, I'll never talk bad about any brands. I, I believe that there are different things for different people. And I had a lot of different brands of eyepieces, but I kept seeing out there that people brought up this brand that I was I was brand new to astronomy. I had no idea what Teleview was, but I just kept seeing it. So I decided I was going to roll the dice on this slightly more expensive Plossel. And that was the first Teleview eyepiece that I had ever bought. And I put this Plossel into my daub 
And this Plossel absolutely blew away the other eyepieces of, of different designs that I had. And I realized I stopped using the other eyepieces and I was just using that because I was excited to show people this, this view with all of this new contrast that I wasn't used to. And, uh, you know, I'd heard it described, but until you see it, it's really hard to kind of grasp. But then it was enough to say, okay, well, if this eyepiece is this good, what if I went to one of their premium eyepieces and I bought an Ethos, which for me was a big jump, especially in visual astronomy, something I didn't even know if I was really going to get into. And I bought an Ethos and it was just game over. I mean, do you want to describe what the Ethos is for people that don't know? Sure. So um, as we were talking about, eyepieces have apparent fields of view and and generally, you know, back uh, in the 80s, uh, 50 degrees was considered uh, standard, but but still wide apparent field eyepiece. But the Erfels at 65 degrees or 70 degrees, um, those are considered really wide uh, field eyepieces. When my father came out with the 82 degree Nagler series in 1981, and it wasn't until 2007, and really my concept for the ethos was we started developing that in about February of 06. But by the time it came out on the market, it was um, 2007, and it created a revolution like the Nagler had that many years earlier. That's what I was going to say. It was almost a repeat. Like you saw the innovation come out with the the Nagler and it completely shifted the way people thought about eyepieces. And then the Ethos came out and did exactly the same thing several years later. Well, I think I think the reason for that was not only the obvious, we went from 82 to 100 degrees, mm -hmm. but we incorporated everything we've learned about eyepieces really into the ethos, and it's where the name came from. This is really what we're about. So in any optical design, there are gives and takes. But what we, how I define this eyepiece to be is it had to be wide field, sharp, and high contrast. Okay, that's all of our eyepieces. But I wanted it to have a whiter image than our eyepieces had been known for. I wanted it to have as perfect distortion correction as we could make across 100 degrees, which is really difficult given that extra wide field. And it had to have long enough eye relief that it was comfortable, potentially usable for eyeglass wearers, but it needed to, to have that long, comfortable eye relief. Because if you're asking someone to look at 100 degrees, in other words, 50 degrees each way off axis anyway, they can't have their eyeball planted into the eyepiece. So we needed that long eye relief. So it was really all of these factors put together into this one eyepiece that I think established it as a revolutionary eyepiece introduction. And so much so that when we showed it, Everywhere we showed it in 2007, the reaction was, wow. A couple of expletives thrown in there, but mostly, wow. Yeah. Uh, and my father, and my, and my father uh, he'd write down people's comments because they hadn't seen anything like this before. And he's a real contemplative guy. And he, wants to, he really likes to figure out, well, you know, what's going on here? And so what was... Why are people saying, wow, what is it about this eyepiece that's making them say, wow? And he realized what it was. 
It was a nexus of the apparent field of view, very large. The fact that you can use a higher magnification for a given true field size because of that apparent field of view. And when you use the higher magnification, the sky background gets darker and fainter stars start to appear, which means you're seeing that same field of view with higher contrast than at a lower power. Mm -hmm. And it was the nexus of those three things that he came up with sort of a factor of how to relate those two. And he called it, he could have called it the wow factor. He could have called it the O-blank factor, <laughs> but he called it the majesty factor yeah. <laughs> because it's the majesty of the beauty of the image. And there are some people who thought that was kind of goofy, but that's fine. They don't get it anyway. Uh, yeah. But you can go at, at teleview.com and you can look up. We have a lot of helpful articles on there, but you'll see an article on the majesty factor and you can read about that. That's a really important idea, too, I think, with the idea of what's really important in visual astronomy. So I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, well, it, it's really important. I, I think in general, right, photographers do the same thing. It's uh, everybody wants all the possible dynamic range you can get, but then you get your photo and the first thing you do bring it into post is increase the contrast, you know, and start uh, start trying to get that look out of it, out of it, which is exactly what we're talking about, right? It's that majesty factor, as they call it. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't call it the O-blank factor, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> the truth is that's exactly what it does. It boosts that contrast and that contrast is what hooks you, seeing the, you know, the, the blacks be so black and then the stars just pop on that background. And it's spread across your entire field of vision. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's a good, it's definitely a, a good way to describe it. You see everything online. Like I've never gone online and see somebody say anything other than this, this just changed everything, right? This ethos just changed everything for me, looking at the moon or whatever it is with this huge hundred degree field. And like you said, with all the additional magnification you can get because of that hundred degree field. And so I did that. And that's exactly what I did was I looked at the moon and I'm looking at it in high magnification and seeing the entire thing. It's like you can look around inside the eyepiece and just really explore and so you don't really realize that you've been looking through, like you said, you know, a paper towel tube until you put something like that in. And then all of a sudden it's just like, okay, so this is the only way I'm going to do visual anymore at all. And, um, <laughs> you know, I started building out a kit of these ethos eyepieces and it's really what got me completely hooked on astronomy was just that perfectly dark background with everything else just being these pinpoint stars. And it's just, I mean, it is the most beautiful thing you can imagine. And I know, Tony, you're a visual guy, so you know exactly what I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. yeah, when you when you put a high quality eyepiece in for the first time like that, it completely changes the experience. One of the big factors in your experience is Dobsonian telescopes, they're generally very fast telescopes. That puts a lot of premium on eyepiece performance. And that's really, with a fast telescope, is really how you can see the difference in eyepiece performance and eyepiece uh, designs. The other thing with the ethos is that even though it's, it is 100 degrees, and like you say, you can look around and you may have a tendency to look around, what you can also do is learn to use your vision a little differently. And you look, if you look right down the axis of that eyepiece, okay? Because most people center the image of the object they want to see. 
but you then let your peripheral vision work and suddenly you're 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 actually looking at the object you want to look at but all of these stars and the field comes out and the context within that object sits you're now taking that in and it becomes a really different visual experience so so yes you can look around you can look at a portion of the field but some people say they can't see the 100 degrees but given the right understanding of how to see it there's no reason that the human eye can't see 100 degrees. When it's something that we're uh, we're perfectly used to, you walk around, if you had to walk around looking through a paper towel tube, all of a sudden everything would feel extremely awkward. But because, you know, looking through a telescope is a new experience, it's acceptable in your mind that you can only see a limited amount. But then when it goes back to, you know, you know you're using your peripheral the way you've described looking through a telescope, it makes perfect sense the second you do it. It's completely natural and it makes sense, you know, even to just your brain. It's like, oh yeah, this is how I'm used to seeing. I can use my peripheral vision and and see just so much more. Um, you know, with those those big field view eyepieces, it it really truly is a different experience. But it's also a way to overcome the physics of the optical system you're using. I mean, by definition, you actually have to have a narrow field of view, or at least a narrower field of view than your normal vision would, just by virtue of the the optical system you're using. Right. So this is a way to overcome that uh, by giving the apparent or the uh, the feeling of a wider field of view than what you would actually have. Because to get magnification at all, you would need to have some field of view limitations. But Well, sure. I, I think what you're referring to there is your true field. So yes. the actual sky that you're seeing, you're looking at a much smaller sky area through the telescope. But with the wide apparent fields, you're taking it and stretching it across your natural peripheral vision. That's right. And I want to take a minute and just sort of remind everyone, because we've got, I want to appeal to the beginners who are listening to this. When, when David said fast telescope, what that refers to is a telescope with a short field of view. Or I'm sorry, a short focal length, and it gives a wide field of view uh, of the sky. Uh, for example, you know, we keep using the paper towel tube as an example, but if an example of a fast system would be a paper towel tube, a fast, uh, an example of a slow system might be trying to look through the sky through a straw. Uh, your field of view goes very narrow uh, as you get to faster systems. So a fast system is good in the sense that you can see more of the sky, but it also has wider field of view, and that is a challenge, right, David, for eyepiece manufacturers, because to get a good image in that situation is hard. Yeah, so let me let me just um, just expand on that just a little bit. Uh, so you can consider the telescope objective, whether it's a refractor or reflector, whatever it is, it's like a camera lens. And when we talk about fast or slow, it's like the F ratio in a camera lens. And you know that's simply uh, focal length divided by aperture gives you this this F number. Um, the way that particularly relates to eyepieces is the faster the F number, the more, more um, uh, demand it places on the quality of the design of the eyepiece. When it comes down to the focal length, uh, sorry, the, the true field of view, it's actually the focal length of the telescope as it relates to what's called the field stop of the eyepiece, that diameter. So with any telescope focal length, you can create any at, uh, any f ratio given enough aperture all right that's just simple math 
But if you want to take a long focal length and make it a very fast telescope, you need a very large aperture. So people have to think regarding the, the F ratio of the telescope that visually it really doesn't have any meaning. And the only factor that it will that it will have for you is in the demand places on the eyepiece. I wanted to clarify that for people who might not be familiar with the terminology of fast and slow telescopes. When people buy a telescope these days, usually they'll buy one of the brands. Uh, if they're not buying a telescope, a Teleview telescope, they've bought, maybe bought a Celestron or a Meade or something like that. And it's come with, uh, these days they come with their own eyepieces. Usually it's a Plossel of some kind. In what way would do those plossels and eyepieces differ from the ones that Teleview has? Well, generally, you know, if we let's take Teleview out of it just for a second. So, you know, when a telescope pr package is created, it's generally created at a certain price point, and you're going to have certain accessories at that price point. And then it's up to the manufacturer to determine, well, okay, what am I going to put with it. And when it comes to eyepieces, generally what you find is a lower or medium magnification or maybe a maybe also in addition a higher power uh, eyepiece so that you can look at a variety of different things. But usually the quality of those eyepieces are are not where Teleview quality is. Um, so again, it goes back to our design, and so so it starts with the design in which we try to create uh, the sharpest, most natural, high contrast view, and then it goes into the quality control that we put into the product. So the eyepieces, while they are our design, we don't actually grind the lenses and machine the barrels and do the assembly. All right, we have subcontractors to do that. And they test the eyepieces and they have to meet a certain minimum spec. For us, that's not good enough. We need to look through every single eyepiece to make sure that our customers get delivered the type of quality that they're paying for and that and they have the experience we want them to have. So any eyepiece, any Teleview eyepiece, whether it's our least expensive Plossel or most expensive Ethos, it comes to Teleview. We inspect it both cosmetically, just the, the 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 barrels of it, the optical coatings, make sure there's no pinholes. We ex it, uh, inspect the internal cleanliness, and then we put it in a telescope, and we test it for its optical performance and its internal optical cleanliness. And only after it passes all those tests do we move it on for sale. We let it out into the wild, so to speak. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about your telescopes. Now, it used to be back in the day, I remember uh, when I was just a wee lad getting started in in uh, amateur astronomy, there were the arguments between whether you bought a reflector or a refractor had to do with what you were going to look at. And the focal lengths of refractors were generally much longer uh, than the focal lengths of reflectors. And so you got narrower fields of view with refractors. You got higher magnifications that were more difficult to use. They were certainly more expensive because of the optical glass that had to be used to construct them. But you guys kind of turned all of that on its head when you came, when you started putting out wide field, short focal length refractors that, that were just stunning. So talk a little bit about your telescopes and your telescope design. Sure. Well, you know, my father's had a history of 
turning this industry upside down with some things. And one of them was the notion that you couldn't have a high-performing, fast refractor, therefore short focal length refractor. And the reason refractors were long, slow tubes was because back in the day that you're talking about, the optical glasses were not available to design faster, high-performing refractors. And of course, with any optical design, there's a trade-off. So my father certainly made some trade-off or concession to color correction back in the early 80s to trade off for a short focal length wide field. But why did he do that? He did that because he knew he could make what he wanted was the ultimate multi-purpose telescope. And indeed, that was the name of his first Petzval-type refractor design, which he also got a patent for. What this was, was a five-inch F4 refractor, which one would say that can only be used for low-power, wide-field views, because once you crank up the magnification, say on a brighter object like Jupiter, you're going to see a lot of spurious color, a lot of purple fringe to it. So that particular design used very simple glass, but my father used uh, a little sneaky trick. What he did was he installed an iris diaphragm like a camera lens has, which allowed you to stop the aperture of the telescope down thereby slowing it down and improving the color correction. This would be for higher magnifications, like looking at Jupiter? Correct. Okay. So you would so you would lose some resolution potential because you're slowing it down, but you could take that F4 system and you could stop it down to F16 with the iris diaphragm. Yeah, but that's not such a bad thing because you're looking at relatively bright objects compared to, say, something dim. So the aperture... And the resolution doesn't become as important, right? Well, the resolution does. You know, a five-inch aperture will show you more than a four-inch aperture sure, on sure. the planet. Uh, okay, but but here's the point. You could vary it anywhere in between so that you could get either the most resolution or the best color correction, the best balance for any uh, particular uh, view. So, so, So that set him on the path of these fast refractors. He took that Petzval concept and has, we've, Teleview's been refining it since 1980. I mean, now with our new NP101 IS and NP127 IS, we're about as far as we can go in terms of the performance of these scopes. These are flat field instruments for uh, astrophotography. They're fast instruments for astrophotography. They're short focal length for wide fields. They give wonderful low power wide field views up to five degrees of true field. Yet their high power performance is that of a, a, a unheard of performance compared to the old long focal length refractors you're talking about. So you get absolutely pristine color correction at the highest magnifications 
as well as the benefit of the low power wide field. And what was the design of this again, did you say? There's an optical designer named Petzval. He developed a portrait lens, uh, a relatively simple design where he took um, doublets of, of slower focal lengths, combined them together to create this portrait lens for cameras that also had a quality of flattening the field of view because that second group of doublets was close to the focal plane. That's the only way you can flatten the field for photography. So you'll see that like even with the Teleview 85 7, and 76 doublets, we offer a separate field flattener for those scopes if you want to use them for, for imaging. With the NP design, the Nagler-Petzval design, you don't need that extra correction. It's built in to the telescope. So any, if you see any telescope, whether uh, any doublet or triplet, any refractor that only has lenses in the front, then you know that's not a flat field design. Now, if the telescope is slow, the field curvature is going to be much less than if the telescope is a fast design. So all these short focal length, fast doublets and triplets, you know, you see some F55 doublets and triplets, they really need a field flattener to do imaging. Okay, let's do some definitions here. So a, a flat field, folks, is the where when you're at the focal length, the focal plane of the telescope, where all of the light comes to a point or a focus, that pl that needs to be a plane in order to have it to be a flat field. In other words, up a little bit on one part of the image plane is in focus, as is, as is the center and as is the areas on the edge. A curved focal plane won't have the edges in focus while the center is. And that's important, obviously, for photography, but it also makes a better visual image as well. So you're saying it does. That's hard to it do does. in a fast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the shorter the focal length, the greater it's called is what's called the Petzval radius. That's the field curvature. So the greater the Petzval radius, the more the field curvature. And if you're using a very wide field, low power eyepiece, and you're old enough like me not to have any accommodation left, it's very possible that you won't see the center and edge of field in the same focus. You could actually refocus the telescope for to, uh, to compensate for its field curvature. Is that a sign of age? Because I have to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yes, it is. So, so that's a sign of age. Now, if you're a young guy like Dustin, he could probably got tons of accommodation left, <laughs> right? <laughs> so he, he has a lot of accommodation left in his eye and his eye will automatically refocus at the edge of the field. Enjoy it while you have it, Dustin. Oh yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I actually, so I do have some experience with, um, with the Teleview telescopes as well. And it started, so before I, uh, bought OPT with Jenny. I actually had the chance to visit Teleview. I was already in New York. And so I got to swing by and uh, it was my first time meeting most of the staff. And it's just truly uh, a class act all the way around. Everybody there is phenomenal. And uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. But one of the things I, I saw walking around that just absolutely blew my mind was this commitment to quality control that I've never seen not in just, just in this industry, but in any industry. I've never seen it anywhere. We were walking by and they were, they were nice enough to show us each room. And at each stage, 
they were telling us how anybody there has the, uh, they can just openly just reject anything that's being passed through anything. And they had these boxes that were full of stuff. And I was picking up a few things out of the boxes and they looked perfect, but perfect to me and perfect to the crew at Teleview were two different things. And these were rejects and I'm looking at them and it looks, it looks like, why would this ever be? But it's like the smallest flaw. It was going in that box and it wasn't passing inspection. And so when I came back, uh, when I got back from New York, um, I was actually uh, going to do some imaging with a friend, Travis Burke, who's also been on this podcast. And I was just going to test, you know, one of the scopes for imaging. And I had a, a full frame sensor. I wanted to put on it. I knew it could handle it. And I liked the fact that because of it's a, it's a Petsful design, I didn't have to do a whole lot of calculations. Basically, if I got the camera attached, wherever it came into focus was the correct back focus. And so what I did was I, I put two Teleview 127 ISs on a single mount and the cameras on the back were identical. And this was my test scenario. I was just going to do them because I didn't have a whole lot of nights to do this. So I ran for a full night running both of those cameras on exactly the same target, which was I had it turned portrait on the horse head. And uh, I did this test shot. And uh, as the, the data was rolling in, Travis and I were just laughing because it was so incredible. And um, it's actually, to date, the most shared image I've ever posted. There have been over 3 million people see this image um, of the horse head. And it's, uh, like I said, it's a big portrait. Um, so it's turned sideways of the whole thing. And you can see all the nebulosity in the background and everything. But it's an absolutely stunning, like super contrasty image that came through. And this was shot from San Diego, you know. But... Um, Granted, it was two 127 ISs uh, paired on a single target. Um, so, you know, you would have to do twice as many nights. You'd have to do two nights instead of one. But uh, still, you know, with a single telescope anyway. But still, I mean, the the quality control doesn't stop with the eyepieces. The telescopes themselves are, for imagers, are just, uh, I mean, they, they definitely can spoil you very quickly. Well, right along those veins, the, the, that vein, the way we... The way we achieve that is I think we do things that no other telescope manufacturer does, and, and we show them to you, Dustin. Mm -hmm. um, it starts with the design of lenses, no doubt. But in our mechanical designs, we build our focusers, and they're hand-built. So whoever's building the telescope, they'll, they'll get their parts and pieces and see how they all fit together. They'll shim them together until they're at a very tight tolerance. When a focuser is done, um, what we do is we hang a 10-pound weight off the back of the focuser. And on top of the focuser, we put a dial indicator, which measures in microns. And what we do is at various points in along the travel of the focuser, we measure the focus deflection. And not only we do we do that at these various points? We then rotate the focuser to simulate the scope having to track across the sky. So we measure the deflection of the focuser to make sure that it's going to remain in line. Your your the axis the uh, axis of the camera, the center of the camera is going to remain, you know, centered and not deflected, not deflect that that image plane. Uh, CCDs are absolutely unforgiving on that. So then we have the focuser set. We put the 
mechanics of the telescope together, the front cell and the rear cell. And then we have a laser collimator, which we shoot through the mechanics of the telescope, and we make sure that the cells themselves are in line, all right, so that we have um, a perfect mechanical centration. When the telescope is finished, it finally goes on another device, which allows us to analyze the image at the extreme edges of the field by actually using a high-powered telescope to look into our telescope. And as we move around the field, if we see that there's any defocusing, we actually can adjust that out using the tilting end ring, which is unique to our IS scopes. You won't find that on any other manufacturer's scopes. Uh, we can tilt that image plane so that we can achieve that even focus all the way around. And that's why when you were using that big chip, mm -hmm. you had those beautiful images across to the edge of the field. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly a different experience, and it's it's one. I mean, I mean, I I have a, a lot of telescopes. I, I use a lot of different telescopes, and uh, I think in in general, I'm just kind of a telescope junkie, you know. <laughs> but uh, but the truth is that uh, that 127 IS, I still keep it. I actually keep it here with me all the time, and I I bring it out regularly. But um, that is that is definitely. Uh, near and dear. I keep that one close all the time. Can we talk a little bit about um, coatings now? Because we, you've you've uh, you've outlined that you know the the way in which you inspect and you go through every optical design. But uh, over the years, David, what has Teleview noticed about the evolution of the coatings that go on? to these optical surfaces. Now, for those of you who don't know, when you've got glass going into, or even mirrors uh, in, in an optical system, you want to make sure every photon gets through the system as possible. And these, no matter how good your glass is, it's going to have certain properties that reflect some photons back. It's just, that's just laws of nature. But there are coatings you can put on these that will minimize the number of uh, electrons that are photons that get reflected back. So you get more light. They're called high transmission coatings. And I just, and they're, they're usually made of different things. And I just wonder if you could comment a little bit about what you've seen in technology as far as coatings have come. Yeah, sure. So an uncoated surface is going to re reflect 4% of the light. doesn't sound like a lot, but if you look at an uncoated eyeglass, it's very obvious. It's a very white, bright reflection that you see. And that's just 4% of the light. So what we want to do is uh, we have these um, anti-reflection coatings in which we specify what wavelengths we want them to work. So since we're using our eyes, we want them to work over the visual uh, spectrum. So it's in the neighborhood of 400 to 700 nanometers or maybe you know 450 to 650 nanometers somewhere in in that range we want to have as much of that light pass through so and yes you're correct that different coatings are made of different materials a standard coating for many many years was called magnesium fluoride it was called single coat and you could generally see that as a sort of a blue reflection when you're looking at a multi coating which basically is what it says it is. It, it, it's it's uh, several layers of different materials that are deposited on the lens surface, and this buildup of this coating makes it uh, more transmissive. Now, 
that also is very dependent on the actual glass type that's used. And and you may or may not know this, but um, so so that coatings are actually specifically designed for the particular glass they're going to be used on. And that's how you can actually get them to be, or your lens system be as most efficient as it as it possibly can be. The coatings that we currently have on the eyepieces now are they reflect only 0.3% of the light. So rather than 4%, it's mm-hmm. now down to 0.3 per surface. And one thing that Teleview does, at least in our eyepieces, we go beyond, we actually, our manufacturers can coat the cemented surfaces of a doublet. So traditionally, you couldn't, when you have a doublet that's cemented together, you could not coat those cemented surfaces. And if you look in older eyepieces, you'll see that bright reflection of the cemented surface. When you look in a Teleview eyepiece now, you don't see any of that. So that's just these little contrast enhancing tweaks that we do. And you can see this uh, yourself, folks. If you happen to walk into a telescope store like, say, OPT or someplace like that, and you can just look at the front of a corrector plate on a telescope, whether it's a schmidt cassegrain or, or maybe a refractor, uh, and look at maybe stand off to one side and kind of look at the glass surface. You can see in some cases, if it's magfluorite, you can see that blue uh, reflection that he was talking about, that David was talking about, where uh, mostly the blue photons are being reflected back uh, and the other ones are going through. But there are times you, you can kind of gauge the quality of the coatings by how dark the objective looks, uh, the corrector plate looks uh, when you're looking through it. You can actually see that. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah. If the, if the front element of your refractor looks like a mirror, <laughs> it's probably probably not a good thing. Well, there's a reason they call them <laughs> anti-reflection. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, so what's one way you can judge? So let me, this is probably a question for both of you, but so you've got uh, a certain level of transmission on each, uh, each optic inside the system, correct? You know, it's going to reflect, like each piece of glass is going to refre- reflect something. So the once the light passes through that reflection starts on the next element so is this light then just bouncing from element to element i mean what's happening there and what what would that cause in your image it's a good question so it could cause cause ghost images actually coating technology is the only reason that the ethos eyepiece it can be as good as it is mm-hmm. because it's got so many surfaces that if it were uncoated you would see all these ghost reflections that bouncing around. So what is that like what's a ghost reflection? What does that look like? A ghost reflection is really what it what what it sounds. It's 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 a reflection of light that is like a little white oh, okay. ghost. Yeah. Now the interesting thing though is depending on the radius of curvature that is um, producing the ghost image, if that ghost image then comes to focus near the focal plane of the eyepiece, you'll see it as a focused image. So that's why sometimes people see double reflections of Jupiter or something like that. Oh, wow. I've actually seen that. The ghost image of Jupiter. What that is, is one of these spurious reflections coming off of a surface and coming to focus near the focal plane. So you see it sharp. If it's not sharp, if it's coming to focus way away from the focal plane, you'll just see it as as maybe a glint of of something, like a ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, your eye acts, your eyes uncoated, right? 
So a lot of times people will see, if they're looking at Jupiter, they'll see this dancing ghost dancing around them. What that is, is the light coming through, bouncing off your eyeball and reflecting back into the system. Oh, not mine. I've got mag fluoride on my corneas. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Like, can we go ahead and put Teleview coatings on my eyeball? Yeah. Yeah, Sure we can. I don't know how good your eyeball will be after that. (laughs) That is hardcore folks right there. Just doing that. (laughs) There was a process called cold coating. Where, and we did that in our F5 Genesis. We used a fluoride element. And back then, you, you, couldn't, you really couldn't coat these well because the fluoride was very sensitive. I'm not sure exactly how that process worked, but it, it was cold coating. It wasn't a vacuum uh, mm. process. What what is the um, state of the art right now with glass? What kind of glass are eyepieces and refractors being made out of now? Well, it's really, this is a, a great topic. It's a heavy duty topic with with uh, a lot of areas to go. So I'm just going to direct it. And you hear people talk about good glass versus bad glass. And this sense cringes down my spine. <laughs> when people start talking about glass types, and if your telescope doesn't have this glass type, it's not a good telescope. But it's nonsense. Here's the way I look at glass types. The optical designer, while they're, uh, they have incredible scientific knowledge, they're artists and they treat a glass catalog like their painter's palette. And if you're an optical designer, like an artist that knows what you want to achieve at the end of the day in your product, then you will pick and choose the glasses that will allow you to control the aberrations to the point that you want. Some of the other factors might be cost or what's what they call the melt, the frequency of the melt. So it's how often do does the glass manufacturers actually produce this particular glass you want to use. The wonderful thing about uh, modern lens design is that the optical design programs can create glasses that don't exist. And you could create the most perfect optical system, but it can't be made. Mm -hmm. So there's not much point in that. That's where the artistry comes in. It's not just somebody saying, oh, I can push buttons on on ZMAX and come out with a design. Yeah, sure you can, but it's not going to be commercially viable. Uh, uh, Same token is if you use a glass that's not made often or a glass that's too expensive, you're going to have a limited production on your product, or you're going to have a product that no one's going to buy because it's too expensive. So there is a balancing act there, but there's no such thing as a good glass type or a bad glass type. But what the glass manufacturers do have are quality levels. And this is where the focus needs to be when people talk about glass types and is my refractor a good refractor or not a good refractor? Because whatever glass type it is, is made. There are certain specifications and one of them is the homogeneity. And this is tested only after the glass is actually melted together. All right. So the glass has its own specs and the designer uses it to uses those specs to design their system. But when the glass is actually melted, its properties may be a little bit different than the than the nominal spec. And so this is more important for refractors than eyepieces. So we can specify 
that we get what's called the melt data of the class. And so we know the exact batch and its properties because it's been tested. We could feed those numbers into the computer and we can correct for deviations. It's usually so minor, it doesn't matter, but we've seen it where it has mattered. And because our uh, our systems are airspace, we can correct for that melt data difference in the spacing. Now, beyond that, I mentioned the this homogeneity. The glass, the melt, can have different refractive properties throughout the melt. That's going to send your image just off the scale, because now you have no way of predicting what the aberrations are, because your glass has different refractive indices throughout it. Now, remember, Every point in the image is made up of the surface area of the aperture of the lens, the front lens, right? So every point in the image is made up of that entire area. And certainly as you go off axis, now, you know, you're, you're um, using different parts of the, le- of the lens. And it's important to specify the most expensive glass, which is grade A fine annealed glass, if you want to have a consistent product. So one way that some companies can get away with saying, I use whatever the latest buzzword glass is, they can get away with using it and yet produce a much less expensive product is by using a lower grade of that type of glass. Mm-hmm. We only specify the top grade of glass at Telavie. So I have um, I have a question. I am not an optical designer. I, I find it... Uh, and I'm not either. Yeah, <laughs> I, I find this fascinating, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm sure that one of you two can answer this for me. And I want to talk about the thermal stability of different glasses and refractors in general compared to, say, like I have an open tube, a truss tube, plane wave out in the observatory. It's a 17 inch scope. I mean, it's, it's big, it's carbon fiber and then has a quartz mirror. The idea being that, um, you can limit how many changes happen as temperature changes happen overnight. So the, the scope, because it's open is exposed to the ambient temperature everywhere. It's not a closed system, so it's not a closed box. With it exposed, there are fans inside that cool it down, uh, the back of the mirror, and move air across it. You know, it can, uh, once it is at ambient temperature, the idea is that it can stay relatively close to that. So you don't have a lot of warping in the mirror, and the image isn't changing, the image quality isn't changing. And I've seen with refractors, I don't really have a lot of the issue, but that's a little bit counterintuitive because I would think with a closed system that the air is trapped inside the refractor, not exposed to outside temperatures. You don't have fans. You don't have anything cooling it. And the front element and the rear element, or at least um, at minimum, right, the front element, if you're not using eyepieces, is completely exposed. How is it not warping? And how does it ever achieve that if it's a closed system? Well, uh, different telescope designs are going to have different sensitivities to that. Our scopes, our MP series in particular, is rather insensitive to temperature changes and temperature changes versus focal length change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't really have that issue with our customers. The one 
area where you would generally tend to have a problem is uh, with the contraction of the aluminum cells versus the glass. So for instance, the the size of the lenses in the MP127 are so large that we moved from an aluminum cell to a stainless steel cell. Another reason for the expense, very expensive piece. Um, But their coefficient of expansion is very similar, you know, between the glass and, and the stainless steel so that we can really eliminate the pinching issue Mm -hmm. because we still need to hold the lenses in the cell tight enough that they're not just going to move around, not going to move out of collimation. So that again is part of our manufacture that you've seen is that the lenses themselves are individually shimmed to the cell that they're put in. And it's really by the feel and experience of the people we have making these telescopes, that they pretty much get it right. And we can send the telescope anywhere and not going to have a pinching issue. Every once in a while, I'll admit, we we do. And we can have that issue because, again, it's a feel thing. I mean, we're talking about wrapping a lens and using shim tape that mm-hmm. varies by a thousandth of an inch. So how much are you going to – how much are you really going to use? And then, of course, how round is the cell that you're putting it in? You know, right. at room temperature, it can be fine and you can, you can get that jingle. But if that cell isn't perfectly round, then it's going to contract and hit a point that the other areas won't. So it's a, it's, that's a bit of artistry itself in, in putting it together. And I've actually, I've seen that. So I haven't had any issues with, um, with temperature change with most of my refractors, um, actually. And I certainly haven't, haven't had any with the telescopes. I've, I did one time with a, uh, a 150 of a different brand. Um, I mean, it was a big scope. And so I'm sure the bigger the refractor gets, probably the more noticeable that change is or the expansion and contraction. And I don't know if that was aluminum or steel or what it was made of, but it does make sense to me that you say, so it's not that you eliminate or can eliminate the thermal expansion or contraction entirely, but if both are expanding or contracting together, you eliminate a big portion of the problem. Yeah. And what we're talking about here, it, it's not thermal currents, okay? Because you mm-hmm. can get tube currents in sure. a refractor for sure. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, this is actually, as as you had said, causing image aberration. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess we're out of time for this podcast. I want to thank our guest. His name was uh, David Nagler. He's a president of Teleview Optics, one of the premier manufacturers of telescopes and telescope eyepieces. And if you've never looked through a Nagler eyepiece before and you don't have access to one, try to go to a star party and take a look. These are amazing eyepieces. And so I want to thank you so much, David, for taking time out to be on our podcast. This has been awesome. Thanks a lot, Tony. Dustin, I look forward to coming back. Great. All right. Well, on behalf of Dustin Gibson of OBT Telescopes, I am Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.